Go ahead and open up your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49. Left to go in our verse by verse study of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49. This morning our focus is going to be on verses 1 through 7, and so let's begin reading there in verse 1. We will read through verse 7. So Genesis 49, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. And this is what it says. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father, Reuben, You are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, and stable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Well, I've entitled this sermon this morning, the prophecies. Uh, the prophecies was also the title of a very famous book by Nostradamus that has never been out of print since it was first published in 1555. Uh, Nostradamus was a French medicine man, an apothecary, uh, what we might call today a pharmacist. But during his life, he moved more and more towards the occult. He took a great interest in astrology, and he came to the belief that he was a seer, a prophet, one who could predict the future. In his preface to the prophecies, Nostradamus claimed that his prophecies extended all the way to the year 3797 A.D., He apparently believed that 3797 would be the end of the world. But when you look at Nostradamus' prophecies, you find that they tend to be very vague. They are written often the same way your fortune cookie fortunes are written, so that they can apply to a thousand different situations and seem to have come true. In fact, there is not one single specific prophecy of Nostradamus that has come true. Only vague prophecies about earthquakes and wars and disasters which have been applied to various situations. It is a very serious thing to claim to be a prophet. God established this law for Old Testament Israel, Deuteronomy 18, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, 
that prophet shall die. So this was a very serious thing in the mind of the Lord God. It is no small thing to claim that God has revealed something to you that He has not revealed. And this is how many tender souls get led astray. This morning we are going to look at a true prophet. We're going to look at the prophecies of Jacob. Israel, Jacob, he is dying. And in verse 1 we are told that he called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And he doesn't mean just he's going to tell these boys what's going to happen in their lifetime. But he means I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you and your descendants in days to come. Jacob is making a claim here. Jacob is claiming that God has revealed to him the future of his sons and their future generations. His parting words to them are going to be words revealing the destiny that lies ahead of them. Now let's let's get the picture. We have Jacob probably lying on his bed. He is still sick. He is still feeble. He is still dying. And as in chapter 48, we can picture him again having to gather his strength and he tries to to sit up in his bed and he looks around and his sons are gathered around him. You can think about how comforting it must have been for him as he breathes his last breaths to see each of his 12 sons gathered around his bed. For so long he had thought that Joseph was dead. There was a time when he thought that Joseph and perhaps Simeon was dead. And then there was that period when he didn't know if perhaps all of his sons were dead or at least out of his life forever enslaved in Egypt. And yet now in the the kind providence of God around his deathbed are all 12 of his sons. It was not only good for Jacob's heart to see these young men gathered around him, but it was good for them to be there too. It is wonderfully sobering to be in the room of a dying person, especially when it's someone near and dear to us. This, this has the effect of freshly reminding us of what really matters in life. When you're in the room with someone who was near the end, suddenly all of the trivialities of life flee away. We begin to see that in the end, what really matters is whether we are ready or not to meet the one who made us. Jacob was an example of one who not only lived well, but died well. He died trusting the promises of God to the very end. He did not fight death. He saw death as the Jordan he must cross to get to that true Canaan. And so he was an example even for these 12 sons gathered around him. He was an example for them in the way he faced death. It is also important to note that rather than going to each son privately and speaking the future of each son to that son in private, he he wanted them together for these final words. 
His sons are being reminded that they are a family and that they are to be united together in love for one another. When he's gone, he doesn't want them scattering and losing their relationships with one another. When you and I are near to our deaths, if the Lord gives us opportunity, we should do all that we can to seize our last days, hours, and minutes to promote godliness and love to those nearest and dearest to us. You and I, we're not prophets the way Jacob was a prophet. Uh, We cannot gather our children around us and tell them their future in this life. But as Matthew Henry points out, we can tell them what we know about their futures. As we are dying, we can tell our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren that they too will one day die and stand before God and we can remind them about the great grace of Jesus Christ. And even as we are holding on to the promises of God, as we breathe our last, we can, we can commend Christ to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and say, He's been faithful to me and I'm ready to see Him. He'll be faithful to you. Just trust Him. Thomas Manton said that the words of dying men and women are often the most effective that they will ever speak and carry more authority than at any other moment in their lives. Often it is those final departing words spoken out of a lifetime of experience that carry the greatest weight because they're being spoken by a person who is on the edge of eternity. Uh, At this moment, sometimes even the most foolish of people Sometimes those who who wasted their lives in this moment, they become more serious and wiser than they've ever been before. Because at this moment, there's no time left for joking around. There's no time left for games. There is a weightiness to what the dying man or woman has to say. And so these final words are very important. And should God bless us with the the mental faculties and the, the physical ability to speak at the very end of our lives, we should not waste those words. We should seize them and use them well. Verse 2 says, assemble. Notice it breaks out into song here. Anytime it breaks out into song, into, into uh, uh, verses like this, notice that that's, that's emphasized the importance of these words, right? You have Genesis 1, and you have the creation of all the plants, and the creation of all the animals, and then we get to the creation of man, and what happens? It turns into song, right? Same thing when Adam receives Eve as his wife. It breaks out into song. Important moments in the Old Testament and especially in Genesis are often emphasized by song. And suddenly we have song. Verse 2, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. The emphasis is on listen, boys. What I'm about to say to you matters. Matthew Henry says children should pay diligent attention to what their godly parents say, and particularly when they are dying. Well, this morning, we're going to look at two sections of Jacob's prophetic words to his sons. We're going to look at Jacob's words to his firstborn, Reuben. We're going to look at what he said to his second and third sons, Simeon and Levi. And then next week, we'll pick up with Judah. So look with me first at the lesson of Reuben. This is verses 3 and 4. Reuben. 
In verse 3, we're reminded of just how much Reuben had going for him. Reuben was the firstborn, which meant that he would normally have had the place of highest authority and honor among the brothers. Reuben would typically have had the chief inheritance. When Jacob died, each of his sons would have been the heads of their own families. But Reuben would have been seen as the head of the whole clan, the whole group of families. In fact, Jacob calls Reuben his might, the first fruits of his strength. Uh, Reuben came from Jacob when Jacob was young. And just as the first fruits of the harvest are usually the best and the choicest of the whole season, it was expected that Reuben, as the firstborn, would be the choicest of all the sons. Reuben was expected to excel all his brothers in honor and in dignity, in integrity, and in respectability. There are a lot of reasons even today why firstborns are said to have an advantage over their younger siblings. Yet in verse 4, Jacob sternly reminds his son of how he lost all of those rights and privileges. You see, Reuben is no longer the son of highest authority or honor. Reuben is no longer to be looked upon as the head of all the brothers, and he is not going to receive the double portion, the chief inheritance. We saw last week that that went to Joseph through his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. Why? What happened that Reuben would lose his place of preeminence? Why? Jacob says it's because he was unstable. In fact, you can translate that Hebrew word turbulent. One commentary says this word means to be insolent, proud, undisciplined, reckless, uncontrollable. It's the word that that brings to mind Isaiah 57 verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. You see, Reuben was not a man at peace. And Reuben was not a man who knew what it was to practice self-control. He went up to his father's bed and he slept with his father's wife. The son who was supposed to outshine all the others in dignity and respectability lost all of the privileges that were rightfully his because he could not constrain his own lust. Not a single prophet, priest, king or judge ever came from the tribe of Reuben. What is the lesson of Reuben for us? It is the lesson of self-control. Mount Hermon, how essential is self-control for living a godly life? You cannot give yourself in happy submission to Jesus Christ if you don't have control over yourself, if you have not learned what it is to deny yourself and to say no to yourself, then you're going to end up saying yes to a thousand things that will lead you further into sin and farther from Christ. Proverbs 25 verse 28 says that a man without self-control 
is like a city that has been broken into and left without walls. It's a city that has been so ravaged that it now lies defenseless. Its walls are gone. It is vulnerable to even the weakest of enemies. Enemies that the city once thought, I will never be beaten by them. Because of the lack of self-control, they come in and they do great harm. Church, a person who has not learned self-control lies open and vulnerable. The weakest desires will lead that person into sin because that person has not learned to say no to self. This kind of person will leave a wake of misery and strife and dishonor to Christ in every relationship, in every activity of his life. Because he's defenseless. Friends, self-control is armor against temptations. You want your armor to be strong. You want your armor to be able to withstand even the fiercest of temptations. But to have strong armor, you have to cultivate it. You have to develop it. Develop self-control. Cultivate self-control through constant practice. If you don't, it will be weak. It will be like paper and and the swords of temptation will cut right through and pierce you in the heart. How many like Reuben have had so much going for them and they lost it all because they did not practice self-control? I remember back when I was a, a youth minister down in Mississippi and each summer we went to a different summer camp and the number one thing I looked for when choosing a summer camp to take our youth to was who was the speaker going to be? Because youth speakers were all over the map. And some of them were very Arminian. Some of them were very much... I knew if I took my kids there, they would all be pressured and manipulated into praying a prayer and they would all be told they were saved and they'd be sent home. And that's not what I wanted because I knew that wasn't real. And so I was looking for youth camp speakers who were faithful and who preached the Bible and and who would do a good job. And there was one speaker in particular who was the pastor of a very large Southern Baptist church. This pastor was well known. He was a great preacher, very faithful in his preaching. He was one of the youth camp speakers that I always preferred. And if I saw that he was going to speak at a camp, I I tried to say, "Can can we go to that one? This pastor lost it all due to a lack of self-control. He had an affair. He lost his position at his very influential Southern Baptist Church. He lost the great respect that many had had for him. He had had the opportunity in the providence of God to preach the gospel to thousands upon thousands of teenagers and adults each year. That opportunity was now taken from him. The newspapers in the city, it was a very big city where he lived, it made a big deal about this affair so that his sin became very public and a a badge of dishonor on Christ and the gospel. A lot of people were deeply hurt, including, of course, his wife and his children. I have every reason to believe that this man was and is a true believer. He is very gifted, an incredible preacher. But God doesn't need any of us to accomplish His purposes. And this man lost the privilege of being used mightily by God because he hadn't learned self-control. To paraphrase Matthew Henry, there are some sins 
whose stains do not wipe off easily, especially seventh commandment sins. Reuben's sin left an indelible mark of infamy upon his family. It was a dishonor that was a wound that could not be healed without leaving a scar. You see, church, even when there is forgiveness in Christ, and there is always forgiveness in Christ for those who are penitent, but even when there is forgiveness in Christ, there are some sins that have consequences that will never leave us in this life. And so let us learn self-control. How do we get it? How do we learn to say no when lust or greed or other wicked desires begin to tempt us? Well, certainly the key to self-control must be desiring faithfulness to Christ more than anything in this world. The, you will always do whatever the strongest urge is in your soul. So you need to have an urge to be faithful to Christ that is stronger than every other urge you will experience or feel. But how do we make that happen? How do we make ourselves be driven by this overarching passion and desire to please the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is, of course, we must love Him above all else. We must love Jesus more than anything else in this world because if we love Him, we will want to please Him. And if that's the supreme love of our life, then the pull of temptations will diminish in our souls. It is love for Jesus that will keep us longing to be faithful to Him. So let us be constantly in prayer, begging God to give us greater love for our Savior. It, it's like you're walking down a path and someone approaches you. And this person says, you see that tree over there? On the other side of that tree, in the ground, there's a box. And in that box is a great deal of money. The man who owns that property, he's been storing up money there in that box for years. And he's a wicked man. He doesn't deserve that money. You and I, we're hard-working people. Why should the wicked have the wealth? Why don't you go dig up that box of money and, and we'll split it. And we'll be set for life and all of your debts will be paid and you'll be set for retirement. And you consider this temptation and it's very tempting. After all, the person who owns that money is wicked. And he might use that money for wicked purposes. You, on the other hand, you're confident you could put that money to good use. Quite frankly, you could really use the money because you have debts to pay. You've had worries about your future. But then you remember the truth. That you are on this path for a reason. You are headed to a king's castle. And that king has personally invited you there. In fact, this king has declared that you are his adopted child. Riches beyond your wildest dreams have already been promised to you. This king has gone to great, great lengths to make you his own, his own child. He has commanded you to come to Him. And He has said, as you're coming to Me, as you're walking this path, do what is honorable. Do what is noble. Do what will represent My name well. 
Knowing that, how can you possibly go take this man's money? Knowing whom you're going to and what he has done for you. Knowing the riches that lie ahead for you. Knowing that you wear the name of the king on your life. Doesn't that make the temptation just fall away? How could I do this knowing that the king would break his heart after he's done so much for me? You see, the secret to self-control is being able to say no to a thousand things because it is your greater delight to say yes to faithfulness to Jesus Christ because you know who you are in Christ. You know what He's done for you. You are secure in His promises. Jesus means everything to you because you've believed what this book says about Him and about you and about your salvation. Living in the Gospel. Believing the Gospel. Believing the magnitude of the blessings that are yours. That's the key to making the pool of temptations lose their pool. Set your minds on things above. Remember your Savior and what He's done for you. Abide in His Word. Preach the Gospel to yourself every day. That will make your armor strong so that you don't follow the path of Reuben. But what about the lesson of Simeon and Levi? Verses 5-7. through seven. The lesson of Simeon and Levi. If Reuben is about self-control, I would submit to you that the lesson God is giving us in Simeon and Levi, it's about anger. In fact, in verse 5, we are told that their swords are weapons of violence. In verse 6, Jacob says that he would not want to be judged by these two sons, for they are quick and they are excessive in their judgment. In particular, he is speaking here of what happened in Shechem. Back when their sister Dinah was raped, rather than seeking to respond appropriately, Rather than pursuing justice in a righteous manner, these two brothers in their fierce anger took judgment into their own hands. In violence, they decimated that city. They killed all the men of Shechem. They made the the women and the children of that city to be their own slaves. They plundered the city, took all the possessions for their own. It is no wonder that Jacob says he doesn't want his glory to be connected to them. Jacob does not want his family, the the nation of Israel. This is not what they are to be known for. This kind of wicked anger is not honorable or respectable. It does not bring glory to God. In fact, in verse 7, Jacob pronounces a curse on their anger. He says it is fierce. And it is cruel. And just as ungodly anger has the effect of dividing people, so the the descendants of Simeon and Levi will be divided and dispersed. So think about the nation of Israel. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan and come into the promised land. And God has revealed what portion of the promised land is going to be given to each tribe. But unlike the other tribes, Simeon did not receive a large portion of the promised land. No, Simeon's portion was 
spattering of cities within the tribe of Judah. It was small pieces of land disconnected from, with the, from within one, disconnected from one another, all within the larger portion of the land given to Judah. The truth is, the tribe of Simeon dwindled in number throughout the years of desert wandering, so that his tribe was never really united, never powerful like some of the other tribes were. Ungodly anger divides, separates, and God pronounced the judgment of dispersion on that tribe. Eventually, it disappeared altogether. It was practically absorbed into the tribe of Judah. What God did with the tribe of Levi, however, is quite remarkable because God took the fierce anger of Levi and redeemed it, sanctified it, turned it in a godly direction. God chose, of all the brothers, to choose Levi. He he chose Levi to make the father of the priests. The Levitical peoples would, would be responsible for protecting the honor of God among the Israelites. In fact, God established 48 Levitical cities and pasture lands throughout the nation of Israel. So the Levites did not have a portion of land. They were scattered. They were dispersed. But in all throughout the nation, there was going to be these cities just for the Levites. And when there was some great sin against God... Who was it that was supposed to lead the way in bringing punishment? It was the Levites. Rather than being unrighteously angry, the Levites were supposed to learn what it is to be righteously angry when God is dishonored, when God is defamed. The Levites were made the the guardians of the glory of God among Israel, the keepers of justice. So here is the goodness of God in taking the angry temperament of the Levites and turning it to something holy and something good. Mount Hermon, Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Which tells us that there is such a thing as unrighteous anger and there is such a thing as righteous anger. And so here is my question for you. What makes you angry? What makes your blood boil? What causes you to get irritated or upset? Do you get mad when people offend you, your name, your glory? Do you get upset when people get in your way and make your life more difficult? Or have you laid your reputation and your glory and your honor, and your sense of self-entitlement into the dust at the feet of Jesus Christ. You see, righteous anger is when we love and trust God so much that we are no longer concerned about the injustices done to us. God will take care of that. Righteous anger is when we see the good, perfect wise, glorious God that we love being dishonored. What makes us upset is when we see the God who provides a way for sinners being degraded in this world. We want our world to know God. 
We want sinners to trust God, to love God. It upsets us when our world belittles God because that makes it even harder for sinners to come to Christ. It upsets us when people do things that blaspheme God and make Him look less glorious than He really is. Anything that makes people more averse to coming to Christ in faith and love, that ought to be what upsets us because we love God and because we love people. Anger and love are not always like this. Sometimes they go together when it's righteous anger. Like God, we should be characterized by love and by joy and by peace but also by a righteous anger that does not take evil lightly. We just sang Psalm 11. Do you see why most churches don't sing Psalm 11 anymore? (laughs) Right? It says that God hates the wicked. We're so prone to say, oh, He hates the sin, but not the sinner. But we just sang Psalm 11. It says He hates the wicked. So our God is a God who has righteous anger against the doers of evil. We should know. We were once there. We were once under God's condemnation. Were it not for the grace of God, we still would be. We need to know what it is to imitate God and getting angry about the right things. Not, the car in front of me isn't going fast enough. But, abortion and the killing of innocent human life. The oppression of the poor. Those who speak lies in the name of Jesus. Those are the things that we ought to be rightfully angry about. And so Mount Hermon, let us learn to love God and to walk close to Him. Because the more we do that, the more those things that are against Him will begin to affect you. Rather than the things that inconvenience you. Remember the cross. Let your heart be overcome by God's love for you there. And your, lo- your, your heart will cringe every time you hear the name of the God you love taken in vain. Your heart will cringe when you hear Him being spoken of flippantly as if He's not a God to be revered. Walk close to God and your heart will cringe when you see His commands being trampled in this world. The Puritans used to say that anyone who would be angry and yet not sin must not be angry over anything except sin. Moreover, we should first take aim at the sins of our own heart. Our own sins should anger us more than anyone else's. But we need a generation of Christians that have a holy anger against the devil and the flesh and the world. This anger should lead us to overcome evil with good. This anger should lead us to overcome hatred with love. There is a holy kind of anger that should lead us to overcome worldliness with godliness. The Levites, they became priests in Christ. We have now all been brought in to the priesthood. You and I are all now members of the tribe of Levi. And we are told, Ephesians 5.11 Expose the works of darkness. 
We are called to be bold in defending the glory and the honor of God. Not because God needs us to defend His honor, but because it is our privilege to do so. So trusting in Christ, continuing to be humble and loving, let us be bold in righteous anger against all that dishonors God and leads souls further away from Him. And let us never be unrighteously angry. Let us never be angry against those who hurt us. God will take care of that. We're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. We're to turn the other cheek. It's okay. We're secure. We know our future. So this message this morning is a plea to you. See the value of self-control and righteous anger. And see the wickedness of recklessness and unrighteous anger. And let us get on our faces and pray that God would rid us of all that is evil inside of us and grant us to grow in greater virtue. If there are any in this room who have not turned to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I would plead with you to do so. God is good, and we are not. And by God's grace, He forgives, He transforms, He brings sinners to Himself, and He makes them holy. Do you not want to know God and to walk close with Him? Submit yourself to Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And He is a great Savior for great sinners like us. Let's pray.